There's a proverb, uh, <clears throat> like apples of gold in settings of silver, so is a right word spoken in the right circumstances. The description fits, but I'm not sure like why apples of gold and settings of silver seem so right to the proverb writer, but it is. But what he talks about is what makes a word right, timely, good, and true. It's probably something that brings uh, some bit of encouragement at the right time in our lives, or it brings us some level of good news that we need to hear. I, I stayed with some friends recently, the Hunts. Uh, they have three little kids, a one-year-old and a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. They had all just been awake for about an hour, and they were wanting the good news from their dad that it was time to play the Nintendo Switch. So they started clamoring for the good word to say it's time, for those apples of gold and settings of silver. It's switch time. So Dustin said, when Claire, the one-year-old, goes down for a nap, you guys can play the Switch. Within 10 minutes of him saying that, the question came, is it Claire's nap time? And she's been awake like an hour, right? We both looked at each other. We laughed. Dustin's like, bro, she just woke up. As the morning lurched, this was the refrain. Is it nap time? The right word, spoken in the right time, was nap time for both the boys. And it's even like true, right, for Annie, uh, their mom. Like nap time holds a meaning for the boys, switch time. For Annie, it's a time of rest, a break from having all the littles in her space. It's maybe a time for her to shut her eyes and take a nap. For Dustin, it's a time to ride the bike. It's a time to get out on the open road. Nap time. That word like apples of gold and settings of silver that brings life. Now, as we walk through Kings today, the text is arranged around the word of the Lord. And so that's kind of the guiding movement as we walk through this text this morning, the word of the Lord. And the prophet, the unique task of the prophet is thus says the Lord. And that word that he brings, even if it's judgment, is ultimately meant to end eventually in life. And so verse 8, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in the wilderness, east of the Jordan, where he's been fed by the ravens, drank by the creek. Now the creek has dried up. God has provided as he said he would, and now the word directs Elijah to Zarephath. Now, hopefully you notice it's in the territory of Sidon. Who else is from Sidon? Well, that's the land of Jezebel and Ethbel, her dad. It's the land of Baal, right? It's interesting. This, in some ways, fulfills Deuteronomy 32, where God provokes Israel by giving his attention to another people. They have made me jealous, was what God says, with what is not God. They have provoked me with their idols. This is what Israel is doing. We read about that last week. They provoked God to anger. So now God is making Israel jealous with those who are not his people, namely the widow of Zarephath. A sort of jealousy for jealousy. Like Elijah is sort of in hiding, but God and his word are never hiding. He sends Elijah further up and further in, into places of hostility, into places of fear, into the land of Baal, to Sidon. And Elijah obeys. The structure of verses 5, 9, and 10 are all written in identical language. Arise and go. Arise and go to Zarephath, so Elijah rises and goes to Zarephath. And so he went according to the word of the Lord. Elijah obeys Yahweh's word. Why? 
Because Elijah knows that built into Yahweh's words are the words of life. Elijah trusts God and his word that it is life-giving words, and he obeys. Now, what about you? Do you trust that God's word is good? That God's word is actually words of life? If God says, arise and go, do you arise and go? Or do you stay? Because you know they are the words of the Lord. Elijah is sent. He's sent to Zarephath, a place where only the Lord can and will provide for him, where only the Lord will protect him, for the Lord is truly his stronghold, his refuge. Now, the Lord's word doesn't retreat but goes forward. Like church, we suffer setbacks, but the Lord never does, nor does his word. He's never frustrated. He never retreats. He never has to regroup or reconsider. His word is always on the move. Whatever the human response might be, if the word is rejected, then it finds a place where it's welcomed. And this is what we see here. The word of the Lord. There will be no dew or rain but by my word. Emphasizing to Ahab and to the people of Israel to turn from their idols, from worshiping the Baals, and to turn back to the Lord. That word is rejected in Samaria. But the word moves forward. Even when it doesn't move the people to repentance, it moves forward to another place because Yahweh is a boundless God. Nothing can hold him back. And so goes his life-giving word. The spirit, we're told in the New Testament, moves where it wills, like the wind. Like we've been looking up in the sky all week. Balloons carried along by the winds. Sometimes, for weirdly, this doesn't usually happen, by the way, they, end up, they ended up north or east this, this week. I saw them from my house in Four Hills, which I don't usually, can't usually see them, all moved east by the wind. Sometimes they move the other direction. My sister lives in Corrales, and she had balloons up in her driveway. Like, we have a box here, that's why we fly balloons here, if you didn't know, and it's supposed to keep them in a general vicinity or area at the different levels of altitude. Joanna, I don't know if I'm speaking. Is she here? She's not. Am I even speaking what I know about? I don't know. That's what they tell me. And, um, but the, the emphasis, like that should remind or prompt our hearts. That's how the Lord describes the movement of his spirit and the movement of his word. And here we see his word moves from Samaria to this widow. The famine in Israel isn't just a famine of water and bread, by the way. When the word moves, it provides a famine of the word in Israel as well. Israel's identity is bound up in the presence and the word of the Lord. So God removes his word and his presence by removing the man of God, Elijah. And as we've talked about in this book so far, this is God's severe mercy, right? It looks like judgment, and in a sense it is. But the aim of that judgment is that Israel would turn, repent. Repentance is a gift for the people and be renewed. The word doesn't seem like apples of gold set in silver. It seems like bronze apples set in a pewter bowl. But they will be proven when tested by fire to be gold and silver. The Lord is faithful 
faithful still, even in his act of severe mercy, even as his word is withdrawn. And so God sends Elijah to the land of false gods and to a widow. And Jesus said that during the time of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel. And remember, widows are dependents on others for survival. No husband to provide, no one to work their land maybe, no standing in the world where they walked. If they had sons or sons-in-laws that could provide, they had hope. If not, they did not. They were disenfranchised. They had no agency in the wider world. So always, widows are associated with death. Death is their end. And the question is, will life break out? And we're told a widow will feed Elijah. And we're meant to be shocked by the weakness of this idea. Like the gods of Baal, the gods of prosperity and power demand sacrifice. They bend you to their strength. But Yahweh calls Elijah to go to places where there is weakness and powerlessness. Places that aren't prosperous for the man of God. In the land of Baal and to a widow. The question is, do we trust God at his word to be in places of weakness? Where he alone can provide. Wherever Elijah goes, life breaks out. It breaks out abundantly. Why? Because he is the bearer of the word and the representative presence of the life-giving creator. And even here in the shadow of Baal, a poor widow bride will be drawn out from among the Gentiles. And the word of the Lord is welcomed by her. It's welcomed in Zarephath. Isn't it interesting, their first interaction? The widow at the city gate gathering sticks. It echoes Jesus and the woman at the well in John 4, where the woman is gathering water. And the word of the prophet matches the word of Jesus to some degree. It feels awkward, at least to our Western ears, like Jesus, Elijah, abruptly asked the widow for a drink and then adds maybe some bread as well. Now, don't forget, there is famine. We at first might not be so sure that there is no rain here in Sidon, which means no wheat, which means no bread, for, no food. We might not be sure that it's here. But as we will see, as we read in the text, famine is definitely here too. And then he asks. Like when I'm raising money for different, when I've made, raised money for different mission projects, church plants, ministry opportunities over the years, I was always more confident when I asked money to people that I assumed had means. Oh, they can afford to support. And I was always a little bit more reluctant to ask when I assumed someone had less means. It's pretty normal. Yet Elijah entreats in a drought where there is no water or food for water and food from a widow. Do you see the weakness of this? And she responds, look at verse 12, and she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And then notice this line. I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we might eat it and die. No bread, flour's almost gone, so too the oil, and the sticks are for a fire for a last meal. Where have, you, uh, where have been your last meals? Like those places where you've come to an end of yourself, a situation, a set of circumstances, a moment where you're just setting about gathering sticks, resigned to your fate. 
Where are those moments for you, Seagrass? See, the woman, even in that moment, is willing. And we get a sense of a woman's hospitality, maybe, is, is often the case. Some of the most hospitable places on earth are with the poor. They give in their poverty, find joy, even with the lack of means that they have. The widow makes room. Maybe cultural norms demand it, or, or maybe the woman is simply one who gives and hosts. At any rate, she responds and responds, even though it mean, might mean great cost to her. Do not fear. Elijah says, go and do. Again, not a small ask. Like, take your last bit of flour and oil and make a cake for a stranger first. And then there will still be some for you and your son. And we feel like that, right? Don't we, City Press? The, the weakness of not being or having enough. Like, so many of you are in this life stage in this building, like, that word, nap time, really does hold life in some ways. You're busy building a family and a career, and you feel stretched and thin, and you aren't sure if you have anything left. And then the Lord shows up at your doorstep and asks you to give out of this place of poverty, whether it's poverty of money, poverty of spirit, of energy, Poverty of place and connection, po- uh, poverty of strength. And what does it take for you to move and to give? Well, it takes faith. Faith in a God who multiplies loaves, fishes, flour, and oil. And there is real fear. Like I am at the end or near the end of myself. Life seems to have seeped out of me. And there's nothing left in the jar, at least, or not much. And the word of the Lord comes, the call of God's word, give to someone else first. I mean, maybe it is your husband who hasn't been attentive to your needs and wants like he should, and he now needs something more from you, and you're like, what about me? Who's going to meet my needs? Or maybe it's another ask from your kids or another mounting work deal. And then there's someone here at church who shows up at our door and needs. Or maybe it's just a friend who's losing all their stuff, like all of it, and they need your presence and attention and time. And you really don't have anything to give to them. They need you to listen. And you're like, I've been listening to people clamor at me all day. And the word comes. Bring me a little cake first and then feed your son and you. I want you to sit in the tension of such an ask. What would it take for you to move and give even in your poverty? Like, what would it take? Like, I'm about to meet with 15 of you who were nominated to be deacons in our church. Deacons, deaconesses. And I'm preparing myself for the ask. Like, what will it take, knowing what I know about your life, for you to step into a place that maybe God has called you, where people in this body have recognized you, seen you? What would it take? We've asked for help with children and nursery and youth. Needs crop up on Sunday mornings. Floods happen. And you really just want me to announce nap time. And then you're in. I want to be careful here because I know 
how often leaders and others have used texts like this to guilt you into something. But there is a tension here. I mean, how does this woman do what Elijah asks? Because it appears before the jar is full, she gives the last of what she has to some rando guy that shows up at the city gate. Bring me a cake. I don't think I have that to give. What would it take you to give it? Now, here's why. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Here, the word of the Lord interjects a fourth time into chapter 17, but a second time into our reading this morning. And this time, it comes from the mouth of God through the mouth of Elijah. Like earlier in 17, when Elijah pronounces, or in, in chapter 7, where, where no, where, when Eli, uh, uh, in chapter 17, when Elijah pronounces no due reign unless I, Elijah, say so. Here, Elijah announces the word of the Lord. This is what the man of God does. He announces, thus says the Lord, the jar will not be spent. The jug of oil shall not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain. What would it take for you to give the last piece of bread in your hand? Well, for the widow, it takes the word of the Lord. Before she is a heroine, we will read this later in the text. She isn't sure here when she gives it. She does it. She has some sense that she needs to do it. But at the end of the text, we hear, I now believe God's words are in your mouth. This is much later than this act of giving her flour and oil. Here she goes and does. Maybe it's a duty. Maybe it's a small measure of faith, like the little elements that remain. Maybe she is resigned. We're going to die anyway. Who cares? Either way, she sits into this, and the word of the Lord announces it, and she responds and does what Elijah says. And then that little mustard seed of faith becomes eyes. She sees And what does she see? The jug isn't spent. The oil hasn't run dry. I love the English translation because, again, it links our hearts to what? Prosperity and sustenance. The bales and the Asherah promise fruitfulness, sustenance, life. But here in the land of Baal, the woman and her son are on the verge of death. They have but little in flour and oil in the jar. The widow is living under the shadow of the wing of Baal. And what does she have left? Dust, fragments of oil and flour. And then Elijah comes and announces the word. The word of the Lord is in Elijah's mouth and life breaks out. Yahweh's words bring actual life. Maybe not the prosperity that you thought. Like the unfulfilled promises of our idols. Our idols say you will be safe. You will be successful and prosperous. You will have enough or be enough. But then we discover we aren't enough and we don't have enough. And the word of the Lord drops in on us and calls us to something else, impoverished as we are. The word of the Lord calls us to rely on the words that proceed from the mouth of the Lord. As we rely on that, we receive what we need. Only to have to depend on the Lord Again, the next day, the next time we scoop the flour and the oil out for cakes for today. But we know, based on the word, that this kindness of the Lord won't run out until he supplies another way to meet our needs. That's the tension. When we are impoverished and at the end, can we first hear the word of the Lord? 
and then go and do with the small measure of faith and see, oh yes, oh yes, the Lord will provide. Now the widow's house now becomes a place of uninterrupted provision. In the midst of the territory of Baal, Yahweh provides bread for her whole household, we're told, and for the prophet who supports, who's supported by them. The flower's not spent. The oil's not empty. Friends, you will not be left spent and empty if you rely on the word of the Lord. If you bank on it and go and do in response to it, you will not be left spent and empty. And for most of you, this is your fear, being left spent and empty. When you are called to forgive and give once again, you will not be left spent and empty. When the Lord calls you to, the Lord will provide whatever it is by his Spirit. This may not mean like you are up and glad. In fact, many of you, after a day of work and kids, go to Citigroup dragging your feet, and then you go, and you're like, wow, I'm so glad I went. The Lord will provide when you are spent and empty. Now, verse 16, according to the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah, the Lord provides for the widow. Now, notice the trial is not at the end. Down the road, the son becomes ill. Now, we're not sure how long. We're not sure why. It might be the son is suffering from the weight of no rain and famine before Elijah even came. It, it might be the weakness of the flesh attacked by something else, a bacteria or virus. But the son becomes so ill that he dies. We're told his breath, that word for life, by the way, his breath ekes out of his body. Can Yahweh, who crossed the boundary into the territory of Baal, to rescue the widow and her son and Elijah, can he cross the boundary of death and rescue the son? The woman cries out to Elijah, like, what is this? Why have you, and by extension your God, set yourself up against me? Why, O man of God, Ish Elohim, why have you done this? Why have you come here? Why have you taken the only thing that I have? Did you just come to remind me of my sin? She so sees Elijah representing God that she sees Elijah as the cause of her son's death. The man of God is so intertwined with God and his word that he is seen as the cause of calamity brought upon her and her son, whether due to the lack of rain or just neglect or allowing her son to die. Maybe the very presence of Elijah and the conversations with Elijah have caused the woman to see that her life wrapped up in the gods of Baal was insufficient was not life, but death. And now she's believing the prophet in the word of God, but there's still death. And that death is the death of her most precious thing. Like, what the hell, Elijah? Have you ever been there? In that what the hell kind of moment? Like, why is this happening? I I gave all this, I did all this, and this is what I get? Like, nap time doesn't in fact come? Like, my life isn't interrupted in some way? Suffering still comes? Death comes anyway? Like, now you want to give? Want me to give what I deserve because of my sin? Like, what do you have against me? Now, maybe she thinks that Elijah's Lord is a tyrant God just like the Baals. And the air she breathes is that, a God who demands, and then the jar is full, but something else gets taken from her. 
you got the jar. I'm now taking this from you. And so she falls right back into her practices. What do you have against me? What sin uh, have I failed to atone for? She thinks you have just come to ruin me. Like we do this. We play games with merit where we do good, be good, and think somehow that it means merit for us. And when it doesn't add up like we think, we think we're destined for a run, the other shoe did in fact drop. But Yahweh is the giver of life. And he commands life unlike the Baals. And here we see that Yahweh is even the Lord over death. So he says, give me your son. And he takes the son to his room and lies him down in his own bed. And he cries to the Lord. O Lord, you've brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I live. You've caused the death of her son. There is acknowledgement here by Elijah that the Lord Yahweh is what? The giver of life. He, He cries and then stretches himself upon the child three times and prays. Let the child's life come into him again. I love how that sounds. The life has left And only God, the giver of life, can bring life back. Yahweh is greater than Baal, the God of fertility and life. God is greater than Mot, the God of the underworld. And so he snatches the dead boy from the grave. And the widow thinks her sin is the obstacle to life. But for Yahweh, the Lord of life, even sin is an impenetrable barrier Yahweh breaks through sin, gives forgiveness to the widow by raising her son from the dead and gives new life. And resurrection enters her house. Verse 22, the Lord listens to the voice of Elijah. Here again, the man of God and the Lord are so united, even their words are united. Elijah speaks the word and the word of the Lord goes and does. And here the going and doing is what? Resurrection. The Lord, the deliverer of life, gives back life to the Son, and he is raised. Listen to Peter Lightheart. Through his prophet, Yahweh demonstrates his lordship, his boundary-bursting power. He shows his power over the wilderness, over enemy territory, and over the grave. And in this, he manifests makes visible his relentless persistence, his unwavering commitment to preserve Elijah, his prophet, and to save Israel. Elijah goes to the wilderness. Yahweh follows him to the wilderness. Elijah goes to Zarephath. Yahweh follows him to Zarephath. The widow's son goes to the grave, and Yahweh follows the son and brings life out of death. Yahweh's commitment is not confined to the prophet. It extends to Israel. He preserves the prophet for the sake of his people. And from Israel, it extends to the wider world, the Gentile world, and the widow and her son. And in the face of Yahweh's persistent loyalty, if Israel fails to respond with trust and love, it's because of their own hard-heartedness, for Israel is left without excuse. This is the God of Jesus the Christ, the God who comes to us in Christ Jesus. Will God... Enter the wilderness for us. He's done it in Jesus. Will he cross the territory of the prince of the world for us? He's done it in Jesus. Will he cross the boundary of the living and dead for us? He's done it in Jesus. Will life break out into ours? Yes, 
in Christ, by the Spirit, through his word, life will break out in us. Notice, Elijah carries the dead boy's body, lays him in his own bed. Now, Jewish law says corpses are unclean. They also transmit uncleanliness. Anyone who enters the room, the house with the dead, is infected by the death radiating from it. Numbers 19.14. But not Elijah. Elijah carries the boy, touches the boy, places them upon his sheets, and spreads his body over the boy's body. And instead of being infected with death, the boy is infected with life. Elijah and later Elisha are the unique carriers of the life of God. Now, when I read this, I thought of something I've shared with you before. It comes from Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. The story, The Connecticut Yankee, tells the adventures of an ordinary man, the Connecticut Yankee. He's from the 19th century. He's transported back into the medieval world of King Arthur. At one point, the Connecticut Yankee convinces King Arthur to dress like a peasant and take a journey through his kingdom. It's a funny kind of scene in the book. The king is the sort of king who's oblivious to the life of the common folk and the ordinary, so much so that he's the butt of most of the jokes, until the smallpox hut. Here, the king and the Connecticut Yankee come upon a a small beggar's house, and as they arrive, the wife tries to, to shoo them away. Don't come in here. There's a curse. There's a plague. Inside, her husband already lies dead. And in this moment, the king, that's the butt of the joke, becomes gallant. Of course, she doesn't know he's the king, but he won't be denied interest into the house. So in he goes. Despite the warnings, despite the sickness, despite the curse, the woman knows she's no match for the king's determination and relents to the point of asking the king to ascend the loft and check on her child. It was a desperate place for him to be in. It might cost him his life, observed the Yankee, but it was of no use to argue with him. And so the king disappears up the ladder looking for the girl. Listen to Twain. There was a slight noise from the direction of the dim corner where the ladder was. It was the king descending. I could see that he was bearing something in one arm and assisting himself with the other. He came forward into the light. Upon his breast lay a slender girl of 15, She was but half conscious. She was dying of the smallpox. The king grabs her with no thoughts of himself, no thoughts of how he might be infected, just places his body over hers, grabs her arms, and descends. Here was heroism at its last. And it would not be a male king killing a giant or a dragon like the rest. It would be a king in commoner's garb bearing death in his arms. City Press, Jesus is such a king, Elijah foreshadows him, bearing death in his arms, and then life breaks out. Jesus bears our flesh and goes to a cross and suffers and dies, but in doing so, he kills the dragon and snuffs out sin and death in his spread out arms, and life breaks out from his flesh to ours. The widow responds with a cry of new life. I know you, Elijah, are the man of God. And the word you speak is the word of God, the truth. Words of God in the man of God, and life comes out. 
There's a scene in the gospel, the disciples have all but left Jesus, all but the 12. The word of God is too hard, demands too much, something about eating flesh and drinking blood, and everybody says, I'm out. And Jesus looks around, so are you all going to leave me too? And Peter steps up, maybe out of resignation like the widow, maybe out of a small measure of faith, says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of life. Do you believe that when you are empty and spent? When everyone else is walking away, wandering away, when your very sons and daughters are losing life, do you believe God's word brings life? Do you believe it's true? How do you know that it's true? Well, faith. Faith is in in what? The Jesus who descends the ladder, carrying you and your sin and the death that came with it, bearing the curse in his arms. His spirit hovering over the formless void of your heart, breathing life into it while you are wandering and worshiping success and prosperity and fruitfulness in Sidon, unknown to the plague it was unleashing in your life. And when you saw him, you said, go away, but he did not relent. Not until he invaded your home and your world and brought in all the light and all the life. For the widow in this moment, seeing her son and the life in him, faith becomes sight and she knows, Elijah, your word is true and your words are the words of the true Lord. Words of life, pulsating life, life bringing life, creating words of life. Elijah's name means Yah is my God, Yahweh is the Lord, and there is no other. Elijah lives because of the word of the Lord. He is the man of God, and the word of God is in his mouth, and those words become words of life everywhere he goes. Friends, you're invited this morning to see the God who ascends and descends the ladder for you who brings pulsating life into your sin and death and exchanges it. And you're left with nothing but the explanation, oh, you are the Lord, and your words are true. Let's pray.